This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Recurrent Urinary Tract Infections. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In the 1500s BCE, one of the oldest published medical texts, the Ebers Papyrus, described a condition called sending forth heat from the bladder that we now know as a urinary tract infection. Back then, antibiotics were not available, so the Egyptians suggested herbal remedies instead, such as myrrh. Over the preceding centuries, a variety of treatments were proposed, including bed rest, dietary changes, bloodletting, of course, narcotics, and even procedures like catheterization. Essentially, the treatments were all palliative. Knowledge of UTIs expanded by the early 19th century, but physicians still didn't realize that microorganisms were to blame. In 1892, William Osler described in Principles and Practices of Medicine the treatment for urinary fever, which consisted of rest, cold applied to the loins, and large doses of amyl nitrate or quinine. If the condition worsened, then acetates of lead and opium, ergot, gallic, tannic, or sulfuric acid could be tried. The final option was kidney surgery to drain the pus if all else failed. It wasn't until the 20th century when antibiotics were invented that UTI treatment really revolutionized. Today, urinary tract infections remain one of the most common reasons for office visits, and recurrent UTIs can be a stubborn problem. To discuss recurrent UTIs and how to evaluate and manage them, I have invited one of Ohio State University's experts, Dr. Andrew Hundley. Drew is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology who specializes in urogynecology. 
He founded the Division of Pel Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at OSU in 2005 and currently serves as the Division Director. Drew, welcome to MedNet. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Now tell me a little bit more about urogynecology. Is that a specialty that both gynecologists and urologists can go into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, either you're going to come to it as a an OBGYN resident who's completed a four-year residency and then a three-year fellowship, or a urology resident who's done a five-year residency and then traditionally a two-year fellowship. But ultimately, um, you'll treat the same set of conditions either way. Okay. And I imagine there's a lot of overlap between the work of a general urologist and those of a urogynecologist. What are some conditions that are best treated by a urogynecologist? Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of, of overlap. Most of the urogynecologists, particularly who have come from the OBGYN side, will continue to practice some of the basic GYN-related care as well, so hysterectomies, mm -hmm. management of abnormal pap smears. Um, but for the most part, um, anything that occurs inside of the pelvis, um, mm -hmm. a GYN-driven urogynecologist will take care of anything outside of the pelvis proper, so kidney stones, intrinsic renal disease, ureteral problems, would typically fall to the urologists. Okay, thanks, that's helpful. Now we have a great variety of programs available on our website at ccme.osu. You can find programs such as female urinary incontinence, kidney and bladder cancer, and many, many more. You can also listen to all 120 of our current programs via podcast if you prefer. Search for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. If you have any questions about today's program, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature at the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast. Now let's get started. Drew? Great. So we're going to talk about recurrent urinary tract infections today, and hopefully at the end of this talk you'll have a better sense for how to manage these patients after identifying them appropriately um, and see that really if you follow an algorithm, um, management is not all that difficult. Uh, I've got no relevant financial relationships or disclosures. Today, the objectives for us are number one, to understand the diagnosis of recurrent UTI. Number two, to, to kind of go through how to evaluate those patients, particularly looking for treatable sources for recurrent UTI. And third, to review the evidence-based treatments that exist and how to apply them in different clinical situations. So, all the information we're going to discuss today comes from uh, the American and Canadian Urologic Association guidelines, as well as the Society for Urodynamics guidelines, most recently updated in 2019. So this is fairly recent data. The index patient that we're going to talk about is an otherwise healthy, medically uncomplicated adult. Anybody who fits into the exclusion criteria should not be considered um, straightforward in terms of recurrent UTIs and these guidelines aren't going to apply. So individuals who are pregnant, anyone who has an immunocompromised state. So examples of that obviously would be people who are undergoing chemotherapy for one reason or another, people on chronic high-dose steroids, um, individuals who are on biologics, often to treat rheumatologic diseases, um, or they have other autoimmune disease processes, even diabetics who are poorly controlled, who we recognize have um, a higher risk for infection. Um, individuals who have anatomic or functional abnormalities of the lower urinary tract. So that would typically include urogenital fistulas, patients with prolapse, um, allowing the bladder to shift into an abnormal position, and as a result, have risk for impaired bladder emptying, 
Those would no longer be uncomplicated patients. Anyone who you perceive as having infections as a result of either clean intermittent catheterization or long-term indwelling catheter use. So examples here would be um, long-term hospitalized patients who are restricted to the bed and have an indwelling Foley, individuals who are intermittently catheterizing because of diagnosis of urogenic blad neurogenic bladder or um, functional or physical impairments such as a surgical procedure that has impacted their emptying function, those folks need to be treated differently. And then anybody who presents with signs of systemic illness, so concern for pyelonephritis, that would include patients presenting with nausea, vomiting, fevers, chills, and flank pain. Anybody who meets these exclusion criteria, we're really not going to apply these management strategies to. So a couple of definitions that we want to keep in mind as we go through this. Acute bacterial cystitis is culture-proven infection that's associated with the acute onset of new symptoms. And it's really important to differentiate in these patients whether the symptoms they're presenting with represent um, their baseline symptoms or truly are a flare, something new to them. Classically, we think about dysuria as the presenting symptom with, to a varying degree, other symptoms including urinary frequency and urgency, hematuria, new or worsening urinary incontinence. And I want to point out that oftentimes patients will give some other symptoms included here like the urine's cloudy, strong urinary odor, they may report vaginal burning or vulvar discomfort, and in situations like that, those particular symptoms tend to be less well correlated with the results of urine culture, so they should be taken with a grain of salt. An uncomplicated urinary tract infection is one that occurs in a healthy patient with anatomically and functionally normal urinary tract and no known factors that would make them susceptible to developing an infection. When we talk about recurrent urinary tract infection, that requires two separate culture-proven episodes of acute bacterial cystitis and the associated symptoms that occur within a six-month period or three episodes in a one-year period with a couple of considerations included. Number one, this requires separate infections with complete symptom resolution in between the episodes. So most of us have probably had an experience where we've had a patient present, we've treated them based on a culture, and we see them again maybe four weeks later. Again, they have symptoms, and in that patient, they say, you know what, my symptoms got better when you treated me, but they never fully resolved that patient should be considered as having a persistent infection rather than two separate individual infections and can't apply that second presentation to meet the diagnostic requirements for recurrent UTI. The other thing that we're going to touch on later in the talk is this concept of asymptomatic bacteria. So patients who present and have urine cultures that grow an isolated organism but have no symptoms or no physical signs of illness should not necessarily be treated. And we'll talk about why that is as we move forward. So in terms of evaluation, a couple of key points. First, clinicians should obtain a complete patient history and perform a physical exam in women who are presenting with recurrent UTIs. So examples of this, we want to explore their lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, what are they specifically complaining about? Frequency, urgency, pain with urination, and do those differ from their baseline symptoms? 
We want to ask them about bowel symptoms, and in particular, we're interested in whether they're struggling with fecal incontinence or constipation, as both of those entities will increase the risk of fecal cross-contamination, which in turn potentiates the development of a urinary tract infection. We want to ask them about their prior history of antibiotic use, and when they're given antibiotics, do the symptoms resolve appropriately or not? In patients who say, yeah, I'm treated frequently, but my symptoms don't change, that needs to key us into the idea that perhaps this is not an infectious etiology that we're dealing with. From the GYN side of things, we want to know whether they're sexually active, as that is a substantial risk factor for many women. Are they using contraception? And in fact, what contraceptive method are they using? Because that plays a role in some instances. Many condoms will have a spermicide attached to them, which is toxic to lactobacillus. Um, and can actually impair colony counts for lactobacilli that play an important role in preventing infections. And we also want to know whether the patient is associating these episodes with intercourse because that frequently is a driver for the development of infection in premenopausal women. Lastly, on exam, we want particularly to look at the presence of anatomy and prolapse. Prolapse can impair emptying function, which in turn can increase the risk for infection. We want to know whether the vagina appears well estrogenized. A lack of estrogen is a major driver for urinary tract infections as well and is a modifiable condition. So, to make the diagnosis of recurrent UTI, you must document positive cultures associated with symptomatic episodes. And as we've talked about, it's two in six months, three in a year. We want to do this not only to document the presence of an infectious process, but also to help us guide management. So those antibiotic sensitivities for particular organisms will make sure that we're actually treating the patient appropriately. Clinicians should obtain repeat urine studies when an initial urine specimen is suspect for contamination with consideration for obtaining catheterized specimens. So what we're getting at here is um, the situation in which a patient presents with symptoms. You obtain a specimen, it gets sent for culture, and you get a result that is greater than 100,000 colony-forming units of mixed species in a patient who is symptomatic. Well, that culture technically doesn't meet the diagnostic criteria for acute bacterial cystitis, but you've got a symptomatic patient. And in many instances, that culture result may be the function of vaginal contaminants. So a way to further assess that patient is to repeat the culture, but with a catheterized specimen that will protect you from those vaginal contaminants getting in and sort of muddying the waters. Um, lastly, cystoscopy and upper tract imaging should not routinely be performed in the index patient who's presenting with recurrent UTI. So evaluation of both the lower and the upper urinary tracts really should be reserved for patients who fall into the complex category, they've got anatomic or functional abnormalities, or they are in some other way at greater risk for getting infection, or in patients who fail to respond appropriately to treated culture-driven infections with appropriately targeted antibiotics. Cystoscopy allows you to evaluate the bladder and the interior lumen, looking for stones, um, polyps, other structural abnormalities, Upper tract imaging, classically, we prefer a CT urogram, which is an IV contrast study that allows you to look at both the kidneys and the ureters. For patients who have contrast allergies, a stone protocol CT can often be close to equally useful. 
other parts of the evaluation. I think I skipped ahead too far there. So clinicians who should obtain urinalysis uh, should obtain urinalysis, urine culture, and sensitivity with each symptomatic acute episode prior to initiating therapy. Now, generally speaking, I'll order both a urinalysis and a culture as opposed to a reflex. Uh, in many instances, reflex cultures will not um, be performed despite the provider's desire for them to be, and that reflects um, different criteria that different labs have for when a culture um, should be reflexed too. We want the culture to help us make our diagnosis and to tailor our therapy. I tend to use the urinalysis for empiric treatment. So the patient presents with symptoms, and as the provider, we want to make them feel better, but we also want to make sure that we're giving them the appropriate therapy. So in those individuals, if the urinalysis, which comes back in the first couple of hours, is grossly abnormal, I will tend to go ahead and empirically treat and then adjust my treatment based on the culture results. If the patient presents and their urinalysis is entirely normal, um, then I'll often wait until the culture returns uh, to initiate therapy. Clinicians may offer patient-initiated treatment, so self-start treatment, um, with acute episodes while awaiting cultures. And I will often do this in patients who have already established a diagnosis of recurrent UTI. They've clearly had cultures that have been positive. Uh, the organism is typically a consistent one with low resistance patterns. And there is good data in the literature to suggest that self-start regimens do not result in increased antibiotic usage, dosage, or duration of effect, and can be just as effective as provider um, provided therapy. Seven and eight kind of mesh together. Clinicians should omit surveillance urine testing, including urine culture, in asymptomatic patients. Uh, and the goal here is to avoid treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. So in many of our recurrent UTI patients, they may have a degree of colonization. Um, and so as an example, when I see for annual follow-up a patient who has a diagnosis of recurrent UTIs, I will typically not obtain a urine specimen for evaluation in that individual in the absence of symptoms. Um, if you do so, you'll often ultimately get a positive culture result and feel obligated to treat it despite the fact that the patient has no clinical symptoms. And in that instance, all you're doing is temporarily clearing the bacteria from the urinary tract, but it will simply recolonize and the patient will feel no different before and after treatment. So as a general rule, we want to try and avoid asymptomatic bacteria, which as care providers can sometimes be hard to do, but is the right thing to do. Clinicians should use first-line therapy dependent on their local antibiogram for the treatment of symptomatic UTIs, and, and we'll talk on the next slide about what that therapy looks like. Clinicians should treat the recurrent UTI patients who are experiencing acute cystitis episodes for the shortest duration possible, using antibiotics that are appropriate and generally no longer than seven days. A lot of times what um, providers will want to do, particularly in patients who are presenting for a second or third time with acute cystitis symptoms, is give them a longer course of therapy. There is no data to suggest that extended therapy provides any additional benefit. Typically, bacterial load is cleared within the first three to five days with most antibiotics and extended courses of antibiotics really serve only to increase antibiotic resistance in bacteria. 
Additionally, patients who are having recurrent UTIs who are experiencing acute episodes where the urine culture demonstrates resistance to oral antibiotics, you should absolutely treat with culture-directed parenteral antibiotics, but the same concept applies. The most narrow spectrum antibiotic that will be effective should be used. You should use as short a course as possible. Again, typically only three to five days and generally no longer than seven days. So let's talk a little bit about first-line therapy. And here are what considered the best choices. Nitrofurantoin, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and phosphomycin. And you'll see that the cure rates for all three of these antibiotics are quite good. They have fairly narrow spectrum that is focused on typical uropathogens. There's very little collateral damage, so the body processes each of these antibiotics quite well, and you rarely have to make dosing adjustments for renal impairment or, or liver function. Um, resistance patterns are low, although they're growing a little bit for, for the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. And as you can see, dose duration is fairly short. Nitrofurantone we typically treat for five days because it is a bacteriostatic as opposed to bactericidal antibiotic. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, typically a three-day course, and phosphomycin is really just a single dose. A couple of things that are obviously missing from this list. Number one, Cipro. So Cipro has been overused in terms of the treatment for urinary tract infections. Uh, it's, an, it's a very broad-spectrum antibiotic and really not appropriate to use for the few organisms that we typically see in the urinary tract. And secondarily, it has really, overuse has bred um, significant resistance. So many times urine cultures will demonstrate Cipro with high resistance patterns. That isn't to say that in a patient who has allergies to some of these antibiotics or is resistant to these first-line agents, but is sensitive to Cipro, that Cipro shouldn't be used. It just shouldn't be an empiric choice, and it shouldn't be a first choice. The other thing obviously missing here penicillins and, and, quinola, uh, and uh, cephalosporins. Uh, again, very high resistance patterns for both of those antibiotics. The one exception being when we see strep infections, it is still the expectation you're gonna treat that with a penicillin or a cephalosporin unless the patient has um, a sensitivity to those particular um, antibiotics. So how about um, antibiotic prophylaxis. So following a discussion about risks and benefits and alternatives, clinicians can certainly employ a prophylactic approach to the use of antibiotics in order to prevent infections in patients who we recognize are at higher risk. And you can see here there's two regimens, two approaches we can take. We can, we can be continuous in our prophylaxis or postcoital. Most of the antibiotics you see on this list are the same um, first-line agents that we have talked about. So trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, nitrofurantoin, phosphomycin, although you'll see that in many instances we can use either our normal dosing, so for trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, the double strength 80 slash 400 milligram dose, or the single strength half dose, and the same is true for our nitrofurantoin. Um, another thing to point out on the continuous prophylaxis, so the daily prophylaxis list, for patients who have an allergy to sulfa, trimethoprim alone, so that half component, is equally effective for a lot of patients and can be used to get you around that, that sulfa allergy. The other thing to point out is that cephalexin is on this list. 
So we would not typically use it as a first-line agent to treat acute episodes of UTI, but as a prophylaxis, it can be quite effective. Postcoitally, um, prophylaxis is really effective for the premenopausal women um, who clearly delineate the development of symptoms after episodes of intercourse, and that's why it can be a really useful technique for the right patients. In addition to antibiotics, there are some non-antibiotic prophylaxis that we consider. So cranberry has been demonstrated in clinical trials to provide some benefit, um, and there are a variety of ways that can be administered, but we talk to patients about that as an appropriate intervention. The data on increased hydration, so increased water intake, is somewhat mixed. Um, there are some studies that show benefit and others that don't. The theory here is that by increasing fluid intake, increasing urine production and bladder filling with more frequent voiding, the individuals are actually able to flush some of that bacterial load out of the bladder and reduce the risk for developing a clinically relevant infection. Now there's a number of things that patients will often come to you asking about or reporting that they're taking, including lactobacillus or other probiotics, um, D-mannose, methenamine, herbal strategies, um, intravesicular hyaluronic acid or biofeedback. And at this point, the data doesn't support recommendation of those agents, but for those of us who care for these patients, I think a lot of us believe they probably do provide some benefit it's simply a case of there being insufficient clinical trial data to prove that they're useful. D-mannose is a naturally occurring sugar. Um, its function is to provide, um, it mimics the binding site on urothelial cells that bacterial ligon, ligands like to attach to. So in essence, it is excreted into the urine. The bacteria preferentially binds to it as opposed to the urothelial cells, and then the patient actually excretes that trapped bacteria when they void. I liken it to throwing down kitty litter uh, on, a, on an oil spill or a, or a gas spill. It absorbs that material and then makes it easier for disposal. Um, the one thing with D-mannos to be aware of is that it can cause a little bit of diarrhea when patients take it. Um, methenamine is also a commonly used agent. It is what we consider a urine antiseptic, so it's not an antibiotic. The body processes it, and one of the byproducts is uh, a, a substance very similar to formalin. It's a highly caustic agent to bacteria, and as it's excreted into the urine, uh, it can really kill some of that bacteria and reduce the bacterial load. Oddly enough, the bladder isn't bothered at all by the substance, um, and so it can be useful as well. In terms of follow-up, um, clinicians should not perform post-treatment test of cure urinalysis or culture in patients who are asymptomatic and have been treated based on their urine culture result. So this kind of, again, speaks to that notion of, of avoiding treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. And as a matter of routine, you don't need to do test of your cultures provided that symptoms resolve. You should repeat cultures to guide further management when the UTI symptoms persist following antibiotic therapy that is appropriate. So big difference between the patient whose symptoms resolve and those that don't. If they don't, repeating the culture is in, in entirely appropriate. <laughs> okay, so this is just a kind of a 30,000 foot overview of the American Urologic Association treatment algorithm that we've essentially run through to this point. 
We want to do a history and physical to confirm our, our diagnosis for current UTIs. We've done that by obtaining urinalysis and culture and performing the specific parts of the pelvic exam that are relevant. If we confirm the diagnosis and the patient is uncomplicated, we can then move on to our treatment algorithm. And in many instances, the management plan should be part of a shared decision-making model between the clinician and the patient in terms of what steps you're looking to take to prevent infections moving forward. If at any point you identify complicating factors, as we've mentioned, anatomic distortion, functional distortion, immunocompromise, um, then you want to think about additional investigation with that lower and upper tract imaging. In some instances, urodynamics, so functional bladder testing, may be of some value, particularly in patients where you want to assess emptying function. Is the bladder um, emptying effectively when the patient goes to void? Are there compliance or storage issues related with the bladder intrinsically that may be playing a role? These are all investigations that would typically be done by a urogynecologist after referral. And if you identify those abnormalities, obviously you want to address them. So moving on with that treatment algorithm, if you've confirmed the diagnosis, you want to think about prophylactic interventions. So as we've discussed, those non-antibiotic prophylaxis with cranberry or behavioral modifications. And we haven't touched on this, so let me do so here. Uh, the typical recommendations are hygiene related, so making sure that the individual is wiping front to back as to not facilitate cross-contamination with fecal material. There's a common recommendation for voiding postcoitally, and the truth of the matter is the data really doesn't exist to say that that makes any difference. That being said, it's a simple intervention. It causes no harm, and we almost always recommend it, with the goal being to try and flush any bacteria that has been pushed into the urethra during episodes of intercourse. We want to talk about vaginal estrogen in the peri- and postmenopausal patients. Um, we want to talk about antibiotic prophylaxis, um, either on a continuous or an intermittent basis. Um, and I want to touch on vaginal estrogen here. Um, so in peri- and postmenopausal patients, many individuals may struggle um, with vaginal atrophy. So discrete changes to the vaginal epithelium that can result in an increase um, in risk for infection. And we'll talk in detail about that in a minute. Alternatively, rather than prophylaxis, we can treat with antibiotics on an episodic, episodic nature. So either with self-start therapy in the reliable and compliant patient or with presentation for symptoms using first-line agents based on culture results. Again, focused short-duration therapy and in instances where resistance patterns exist, using that culture to direct our therapy. I'm going to just back up here because we missed one slide. I want to talk about estrogen for a minute. So, as I said, in postmenopausal patients where there is vaginal atrophy present, this represents a significant risk for the development of infection. And the, and the sort of domino effect that occurs is the following. You see these decreases in estrogen levels that result in changes to the epithelium. A loss of moisture, lubrication, rugation or elasticity to the tissue. And for the provider, you can often visually identify these changes. The vaginal mucosa loses that sort of deep pink or rosy red coloration and becomes more pale and tan due to a loss of vasculature. 
One of the things that goes hand in hand with that is a change in the pH. So the normally premenopausal vaginal environment is acidic. And lactobacillus love that acidic environment. They play an important role in keeping other pathologic bacteria out of the vaginal cavity. With that fall in estrogen levels, the pH level rises, lactobacilli fail to thrive, and now there is an open area for more pathognomonic bacteria like E. coli to then colonize the vagina. Due to the proximity of the urethral opening, it's not hard for those bacteria to then get into the urethra ascend to the bladder and drive infections. And as a consequence, treatment with topical estrogen does a really nice job of reversing these changes and ultimately providing prevention for infection. I should stress that topical estrogen is a local effect only. So there's negligible systemic absorption of the estrogen. And as a consequence, the small but recognized risks of systemic estrogen therapy that we recognize to be present. So increased risk for breast cancer, heart attacks, strokes, blood clots. Those risks do not exist with topical therapy. And in fact, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has a committee opinion that speaks to the fact that even in patients with a estrogen-sensitive cancer such as breast cancer, it is reasonable to treat them with topical estrogen therapy once non-hormonal methods have been tried and have not been effective. Okay, so I wanna move on to a couple of case presentations just to try and apply some clinical relevance to some of the things that we've talked about. And hopefully these cases will resonate with you in terms of, oh yeah, I've seen that patient and haven't been quite sure what to do in terms of management. For the, so the first case is a 36-year-old female who presents with a complaint of recurrent UTIs. Um, her history is that she has had these UTIs for several years. She says she checks her urines at home with store-bought dipsticks. She's treated with antibiotics either by her primary care physician, her gynecologist, or in some instances at urgent care facilities. So you've got a couple of different providers involved in managing this. And she says she always checks her urine. Um, whether it's at home or whether the providers look at it. She says her mother has a history of recurrent UTIs and is actually on daily antibiotic suppression. And she says, that's what I'd like. I'd like antibiotics on a daily basis because this is getting tiring. She's otherwise healthy. She is sexually active and she reports to you that she's using condoms. And on GYN exam, she has normal anatomic support. So let's start by thinking about the risk factors for this patient. Number one, she's sexually active and she's using condoms, which as I mentioned, um, can create a particular problem. So that's a modifiable issue, not the sexually active part, but we can talk about different types of, uh, of uh, birth control that might be less problematic. Um, the other thing I wanna talk about is this idea of giving antibiotics without cultures. We really haven't proven at this point that she meets the diagnostic criteria for recurrent UTI. So we may get there eventually, but at this point we wanna hold on starting antibiotic prophylaxis until we've really made the diagnosis. And there's a couple of things that complicate this patient. Number one, the store-bought dipsticks. So store-bought dipsticks have really poor quality control. There's huge variability even within one container of dipsticks tested against similar urine specimens. You can get two different results. Even with the office-based quality-controlled dipsticks that we use as providers, these should be thought of as screening tests. The value of a dipstick, the utility, is in, in, its, in, in its negative predictive value. So if a dipstick is normal, it is 99% likely 
that there is nothing pathologic going on in that urine specimen. When they're positive, there is a frequent event of false positivity, particularly related to blood or um, leukocytes. I would tell you that easily 50% of the time when I have a patient whose dipstick shows trace blood and nothing else, the urinalysis will fail to show that there are red blood cells in that specimen. That's a function of cross-reaction with things in the urine either related to diet or medications, or in some instances you've actually got vaginal contaminants getting into the specimen that the dip is picking up. So we don't want to make any clinical decisions based on the dipstick, and we want to reinforce that to her. Um, secondarily, you need to explore with her a little bit what her understanding is for what's being done with those urines that are being checked. So if she reports to you that she's seen, the provider comes back into the room in the first 10 minutes and says, yep, you've got a UTI, here's antibiotics, we need to recognize that that's an empiric diagnosis being based on a dipstick and really doesn't tell us a whole lot about what's going on. From her perspective as the patient, she's got a UTI, and you need to educate her about the fact that there's a sort of breakdown in the diagnostic process. Um, that's obviously very different than if she says, yeah, I go in, I provide a specimen, and then two days later they call me with a culture result, and they say, here, you, the antibiotic we gave you is correct. That's a different story. So in going through this patient a little bit, we want to educate them, as we've talked about, in terms of hygiene the importance of using antibiotics only when we've got cultures to guide our, our process. And as we've discussed, test of cure cultures are not appropriate with symptom resolution. Her risk factors, particularly um, sexual activity, and in these patients, a lot of times, we'll set up standing urine cultures to make sure that we get specimens to move forward with the process of documenting recurrent UTIs. Stressing the importance of care with a single provider. Um, so that you don't have too many cooks in the kitchen and everybody's basically giving the same message, which is cultures and tailored therapy. These patients we want to treat with antibiotics where appropriate based on the cultures. We can talk about the value of cranberry and water intake. So the next patient's a little bit different. Case two is an 80-year-old who also reports recurrent UTIs. She lives in a nursing facility. She's not sexually active. She reports that she's got some issues with both urinary and fecal incontinence. Um, her UTIs have been treated with escalating doses of antibiotics, and most recently she was treated for two weeks. Um, so there's an example of an extended course. Her cultures are always positive for the same organisms, and they're beginning to show escalating resistance patterns. On exam, she does demonstrate some vaginal atrophy, but she has otherwise normal anatomic support. So what are her risk factors for recurrent UTI? Well, her age and her vaginal atrophy for sure. Um, she's got normal support, so we don't necessarily have to worry about uh, an emptying issue. The big thing with her is her incontinence. So fecal incontinence and the potential for cross-contamination, um, creating these infections is a real possibility, and so we would want to focus some of our efforts on modifying that issue. Oddly, urinary incontinence can create the same sorts of problems if she's wearing pads that are chronically wet. Bacteria can get on there and actually use the pad as a culture medium that then allows sort of invasion into the vaginal cavity. And then you probably want to explore a little bit further with her, her living situation. She's in a nursing facility. Is she functionally impaired um, to an extent where voiding function and frequency of urination is, is restricted? 
Um, is this patient complicated? Not based on the diagnosis, uh, the definitions that we've talked about. So she can be treated as an uncomplicated recurrent UTI patient. And as a consequence, imaging is really not indicated at this point unless she fails to respond appropriately to her treatment. Now, you can look at this and say, well, she's had multiple courses of antibiotics. She, most recently, she's been treated for two weeks. That's a problem. In this patient, we want to initiate our, our modifiable changes. So we want to get her started on topical estrogen. We want to work on that hygiene issue. We can inc increase water intake and add the cranberry in the hopes of changing her infection profile before um, feeling like she has failed to respond appropriately to normal treatment methods. And just as was the case with the primary patient, we want to educate about the importance of hygiene. We want to add the education about atrophy and then touch again on importance of antibiotic stewardship and using our cultures to dry, drive our therapy for appropriate duration of time. Again, the same sort of recommendations in terms of single provider, standing orders for urine cultures. This is the kind of patient who we might also add some of those other preventative strategies that don't have a lot of data behind them, like D-mannose or methenamine. Okay, the next case is a 72-year-old who presents saying, my urologist said I need my bladder prolapse repaired. She's got high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, some osteoporosis, but is otherwise a fairly healthy and functional individual. She's not sexually active. Her UTIs are culture-proven. On exam, she's got stage three anterior vaginal prolapse and vaginal atrophy. So in terms of her prolapse, stage three reflects descent of the anterior vaginal wall that the bladder is resting on to at least one centimeter beyond the introitus. So this represents fairly significant prolapse that certainly is altering the positioning in the bladder and has the potential to impact her emptying function. Now her office post-void residual is 10 milliliters, which is quite low but this is only half of the picture. We don't know what her voided volume looked like, so if she peed 25 milliliters with a 10 milliliter residual, that's very different than voiding 350 milliliters with a 10 milliliter residual. So this is an individual who deserves some assessment of her emptying function. So her risk factors, her age, and her vaginal atrophy. This patient also has a risk factor in terms of prolapse and the question of is she having an emptying issue that needs to be addressed. Both of these are modifiable if present, but we've got to identify them. And in this case, we don't know the answer yet as to whether the prolapse is her cause of her UTIs. We've got to evaluate that post-void residual a little bit more. So again, educating about atrophy and impact of the prolapse. We want to assess her emptying function, and that's where urodynamic function testing often will come in. So this is a patient we may want to refer to somebody like a urogynecologist, and then address the emptying issues if we identify them. Otherwise, it's topical estrogen, increasing water intake, cranberry, all the other um, interventions that we've talked about previously. Case four, a 55-year-old patient who again has a diagnosis for recurrent UTIs. She's sexually active and perimenopausal. Her UTIs are sometimes associated with episodes of intercourse in terms of the symptoms. She feels like her symptoms respond to varying degrees to courses of antibiotics. Sometimes the symptoms get better, sometimes they don't really seem to change very much. And when you actually explore her laboratory data, you've got one positive culture for 10 to 50,000 colony forming units of E. coli, so a little bit on the lower side, and she's actually got two negative cultures. 
On exam, she's got vaginal atrophy, but otherwise normal support, and her office post-void residual is reassuring. So the first question in this patient that you've got to ask yourself, taking a step back, is does she actually have recurrent UTIs? And the answer is the data says no. Um, you, this is the classic example of somebody who, from a treatment standpoint, has been managed as though they have recurrent infections, but in fact they may have a non-infectious etiology for their symptoms. And so things to consider would include genitourinary symptoms of menopause, painful bladder syndrome, uh, vaginal atrophy, um, overactive bladder. Any of these can potentially mimic the symptoms patients associate with UTI. And obviously, antibiotic therapy in the absence of infection is really not going to provide much benefit. So this is a patient where you want to take a step back and assess your prior diagnosis to see whether there's something else that might be going on. So as I mentioned, importance of cultures to delineate whether you've got an infectious process and the consideration of these other symptoms, genitos, urinary symptoms of menopause, overactive bladder, painful bladder syndrome, atrophy. Often these patients can benefit from keeping a diary. So you ask them to keep track of episodes of intercourse, episodes of symptoms, and response to a variety of interventions to see whether truly it sounds like it's associated with intercourse in particular and whether you think it's um, an infectious etiology. The last case, an 82-year-old patient who has positive test of cure urine cultures despite appropriate antibiotic treatment. So she's had multiple cultures showing Klebsiella, E. coli, Enterobacter, a variety of different organisms. On exam, she demonstrates vaginal atrophy but has normal support. Again, a normal office post-void residual and because she has failed to respond appropriately to um, cultures in terms of culture positivity, she's ended up having upper and lower tract imaging, which was unremarkable. So this case really is designed to trigger in your mind this idea of asymptomatic colonization. The, the critical thing here is to ask the patient, okay, your cultures have been positive, but how do you feel? Have your symptoms resolved? or are they ongoing? And in patients where they are asymptomatic, we don't want to fall into that trap of repetitively treating positive cultures that represent a colonization situation as opposed to a clinically relevant infection. So hopefully these different cases kind of bring to the front some of the things that we've talked about in terms of management strategy. And overall, um, you feel like you've got a better understanding for what recurrent UTIs are and how to manage them. Thank you so much, Drew. That was extremely helpful. I'm really glad you touched on topics like the home dipstick because that's definitely something patients call me with uh, all the time. Like, my home dipstick was positive. I have a UTI, I need some antibiotics. Yeah. So that was super helpful. And I really appreciate you going through estrogen and um, how that affects the postmenopausal woman. Um, and I feel like I know a lot more about recurrent UTIs. But I do have a question about urine testing. So, um, you know, a number of years ago, I remember there being a Choosing Wisely campaign um, recommending that for young women who didn't have any risk factors for complicated UTI, that you could um, just treat with their symptoms empirically without doing any type of urine testing. Now, recently I've tried to look for that and I really haven't seen that recommendation anywhere. Um, and it seems like perhaps that has been, uh, that has gone away. So I'm curious to know, do you recommend urine testing? I mean, that's something I, I feel like you emphasized during the talk today. 
Yeah, I, I think the critical um, sort of differentiator here is what's the, the recurrent nature of the symptoms or lack of recurrent nature. For uh, an otherwise healthy, uncomplicated patient who is presenting on an occasional basis, once a year, once every other year with symptoms, empiric therapy uh, without testing is reasonable. As soon as you get into a frequency that meets the diagnostic for recurrent UTIs, or the individual has never actually had testing to prove an association between the symptoms that they're characterizing and a positive culture, you're going to want to get testing in that individual, at least initially, to establish the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Once you've done that, if they're otherwise uncomplicated and they respond appropriately, in general, it's reasonable to treat without assessment. Okay. Now, um, when performing a pelvic exam for UTIs, what should a clinician be looking for? You mentioned, you know, like a prolapse, but anything else we should be looking for? Yeah, I think the, the single most important things to kind of assess in the recurrent UTI patients are modifiable issues um, that can reduce their risk for infection. So as you say, prolapse or any other structural anatomic issue that might impair emptying function and increase their risk for infection. And then the, the big thing is atrophy. Um, mm -hmm. And you really um, can identify atrophic changes to the vagina in the vast majority of people who have low estrogen levels. And therapy is so straightforward in terms of topical estrogen, which has very low risk. Um, often we'll start patients a couple of times a week with uh, a cream, and mm -hmm. then maintenance is once a week, typically applied at bedtime to allow for absorption. Um, and it can be a highly effective method for preventing infections. Mm -hmm. Now, talking about estrogen, um, you know, one of the challenges I've had with estrogen is that sometimes it can be very expensive. Has that um, improved of late? Yeah, this continues to be a struggle for us as well. There are, there are two formulations of cream, um, ethanyl estradiol, which is animal-based, and then um, estriol, estradiol, which is plant-based. And it, it's it's odd, depending on the patient's um, insurance, mm -hmm. sometimes one is less expensive, and then for other folks, the other is less expensive. Usually what I tell people is, look, I'm, there's two formulations here, and we can use either one. I'm going to prescribe the one that I think is going to be less expensive for you. But if you get to the pharmacy and it's super expensive, don't fill it. Call me. I'll send mm -hmm. the prescription for the other formulation. Rarely other um, sort of dosing administers, so tablets, so suppositories, um, or an inserted vaginal ring with slow-release estrogen mm -hmm. can be less expensive as well. Mm -hmm. It just depends on the specific patient's formulary, but any of them will be effective in terms of what we're trying to accomplish here. Okay. Um, and then tell me more about cranberry. How do you recommend that? Do, do people just drink cranberry juice or, or um, do they need to take a specific amount? Yeah, so a, a lot of times patients will present saying that they're taking cranberry as a preventative measure. And what they're doing is they're drinking juice. They're taking, uh, drinking a couple of glasses a day. The truth is the amount of cranberry extract and the proanthocyanidins that are believed to be the critical thing for preventing bacterial adherence within mm -hmm. the bladder, there's just not enough of that in cranberry juice. The patient would have to drink 64 ounces of juice on a daily <laughs> basis um, to really derive benefit. Plus, you've got all that sugar in the juice mm -hmm. that sets, creates its own set of problems. So the recommendation generally is to use an extract, um, and there are a variety of those available commonly in, in grocery stores and pharmacies, and it, it doesn't matter which one 
Um, they use, they should just use the packaging label in terms of dosing frequency. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that um, methenamine and D-mannose were on your unproven list, but I also saw them on a few of your slides as possible recommendations. Um, are those over-the-counter as well? And, and what do you usually tell people to do for those? So D-mannose is over-the-counter available. Um, it's present in a lot of sort of urine and bladder health medications you can mm -hmm. see in the health food aisle um, as, as one of the primary ingredients. Um, methenamine is a prescription. Um, both of them are um, interventions where it really is a function of a lack of data to allow um, recommendation but not so much data that says that they don't work. So there have been um, meta-analyses published in the last two years related to both of these agents um, that have demonstrated trends towards benefit without meeting statistical significance because the collection of studies are so small mm -hmm. and the numbers are so small that they just can't reach statistical significance. But generally thinking, we expect that they provide some benefit and there's very little downside to using them. So in most instances, we will give them a try in, in certain patients. Okay, and then what kinds of UTI patients should the primary care physician be referring to the specialist? So I think anybody who meets the criteria for uncomplicated recurrent UTIs, as we've talked about today, can be adequately managed by primary care physicians, particularly if they follow this algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, we're always happy to see those patients and manage them if the provider doesn't feel comfortable. As soon as you get into more complicating factors, so the presence of prolapse, perhaps they've got atrophy and the provider just doesn't feel comfortable mm -hmm. with that shared decision-making discussion with the patient about estrogen. You know, patients with breast cancer history who have recurrent UTIs mm -hmm. and you want to talk to them about topical estrogen, that can be a really emotionally charged conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that's best done by, by your gynecologist. So um, we're always happy to see these patients, but for a lot of the uncomplicated ones, they can very effectively be managed if you've got the right algorithm. Perfect, and thank you for giving us that algorithm. Last question, in selecting kind of a prophylactic antibiotic, do, do you, because uh, I saw, you know, you kind of have a pretty long list. Do you go by cultures or how do you decide what to use? Yeah, I think it's more provider uh, preference than anything else. Any of the um, antibiotics on the list can be quite effective. I will tend to keep people on antibiotic suppression for a year, and then if they've done well, um, maintain it. I try and cycle those antibiotics every couple of years just to give the bacterial flora a little bit of a different look from time mm, to time. Okay. But there's no clear recommendation about a single right way to do it. As long as your preventative strategies are working, mm -hmm. um, you can continue to utilize those antibiotics. Perfect, thank you so much, Drew. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point. Drew? Yeah, and, and not surprisingly, my key point is it's all about urine cultures. Um, it's important to obtain those both to meet your diagnostic criteria for recurrent UTI, um, and as well as to tailor your therapy so that you know that you are treating the correct organism with the right antibiotic. And as we've stressed, antibiotic stewardship and treating for short courses of antibiotics without the need to repeat cultures in patients whose symptoms have resolved. Thank you so much for joining us today. For our audience, don't forget to claim your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points for watching. You can find all of that information on our website at ccme.osu.edu. 
Next week, I'll be joined by Drs. Ijaj and Mitra to discuss pancreatic cancer. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.